0: Section twenty two of England since Waterloo by John Arthur Ransom Marriott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter eleven Great Britain and Continental Politics, eighteen forty six to eighteen fifty two. Lord Palmerston and Queen Victoria, part two. Lord Palmerston's triumph, though complete, was short lived. Rhetoric might sway the House of Commons. It had no effect whatever on the judgment of the Queen. She resented the minister's treatment of the Crown, she deplored his diplomatic methods, and she profoundly mistrusted his aims. In particular, she complained, and with reason, that the minister gave her no time to master the contents of dispatches, which she was called upon to approve. Palmerston, on his side, treated the Queen much as an old family solicitor is apt to treat a young lady client. Her perusal and approval were to be taken for granted. The Queen's conception of her plain duty was diametrically opposed to this. She repeatedly complained not only to the Foreign Secretary but to the Prime Minister. Neither to her remonstrances nor to his chiefs did Palmerston pay the least attention the queen urged his removal from the foreign office and russell acquiesced but the issue of the debate on june twenty ninth warned him of the futility of attempting it at the moment on july twenty eighth the queen again complained that there is no question of delicacy and danger which lord palmerston will not arbitrarily and without reference to his colleagues or sovereign engage this country ultimately on august twelfth the Queen drafted a formal memorandum explaining what it is she expects from her foreign secretary. She requires, number one, that he will distinctly state what he proposes in a given case, in order that the Queen may know as distinctly to what she has given her royal sanction, number two, having once given her sanction to a measure that it be not arbitrarily altered or modified by the Minister, such an act she must consider as failing in sincerity toward the crown, and justly to be visited by the exercise of her constitutional right of dismissing that minister. She expects to be kept informed of what passes between him and the foreign ministers before important decisions are taken, based upon that intercourse, to receive the foreign dispatches in good time, and to have the drafts for her approval sent to her in sufficient time to make herself acquainted with their contents before they must be sent off lord palmerston professed penitence promised amendment and went on precisely as before in the autumn general heinau an austrian soldier who had earned a reputation for exceptional cruelty in hungary was mobbed and hooted in london by the draymen when he was visiting the brewery of Messrs. Barclay and Perkins. Palmerston had to apologize to the Austrian ambassador, Baron Kohler, but could not refrain from an expression of his opinion that Hainau's visit was a wanton insult to the people of this country. The Queen was seriously annoyed, and told the minister that she could as little approve of the introduction of lynch law in this country as of the violent vituperations with which Lord Palmerston accuses and condemns public men in other countries, without having the means of obtaining correct information or of sifting evidence. The rebuke was a stinging one, but no candid person can affirm that it was unmerited. As spokesman of Great Britain among the nations, Palmerston had great merits and under a strong prime minister they might have been less obviously balanced by defects. As it was, the task of correction fell too often to the crown, and the crown cannot permit repeated warnings to be disregarded without loss of dignity. It was unfortunate that on the merits of the disputes between himself and the court, the foreign secretary was more often right than wrong. In regard to Italy, as in regard to Schleswig-Holstein, and other questions, the queen's views were indubitably biased by personal and dynastic considerations. Of these, Palmerston was not unnaturally intolerant, but no degree of certainty as to the unassailable correctness of his own attitude can justify Palmerston's disrespectful treatment of the crown. Some part of his irritation was doubtless due to the fact that there was a prince-consort behind the throne, and behind the prince a Baron Stockmar. It is true also that the queen had not yet accumulated the experience which proved so valuable to her ministers in the later years of her reign, but her grasp of European politics was already firm, and apart from this she had certain constitutional rights in regard to the conduct of foreign affairs which no minister was at liberty to ignore nor was Palmerston more complacent toward his colleagues and his chief than toward the sovereign. Throughout 1850 and 1851, there was increasing friction between the Prime Minister and the Foreign Secretary. It came to a head in October 1851, when Kossuth, the leader of the Hungarian Revolution, landed in England. It was announced that he was to be received by Lord Palmerston, Lord John insisted that the proposed interview would be improper and unnecessary, and in plain terms interdicted it. Palmerston hotly retorted, I do not choose to be dictated to as to whom I may or may not receive in my own house. The cabinet supported the premier, and Palmerston gave way, but a few weeks later he received a radical deputation, which presented him with an address in which the emperors of austria and russia were referred to as odious and detestable assassins not unnaturally the queen was intensely annoyed but the premier though he could not justify his colleague still hesitated to dismiss him at last however even lord john's forbearance was exhausted or perhaps his timidity was overcome News reached London on December 3, 1851, of the military coup d'etat by which Prince Louis Napoleon virtually overthrew the Second Republic. Footnote. The formal overthrow was a year later, December 1852. End footnote. Dissolving the chambers by armed force and crushing their supporters at the barricades with ruthless severity. The Queen learning of it on the fourth enjoined the strictest neutrality the prime minister concurred and instructions in this sense were sent by the foreign office to lord normanby footnote, our ambassador in paris and footnote the latter learned however from the french foreign minister that palmerston had already expressed approval of the coup d'etat to count valevsky footnote french ambassador in london he was an illegitimate son of Napoleon I, and a great confidant of his nephew. and An approval which naturally rendered his own position difficult. He embodied the facts in a dispatch which ultimately came before the Queen and the Prime Minister. The latter entirely associated himself with the Queen's displeasure, dismissed Palmerston from the Foreign Office, and with the Queen's cordial approval, appointed in his place lord granville a curiously incongruous offer of the viceroyalty of ireland was caustically declined by palmerston the matter has been endlessly discussed but the facts are no longer in dispute it is clear that palmerston cordially approved the coup d'etat partly on the principle of self-defence partly on the ground that the existing constitution of france was unworkable it is clear also that while instructing normanby to maintain a neutral attitude in paris he allowed the french government to know his own opinion without reserve that normanby had grave cause for complaint against the foreign minister is certain that palmerston had cause for complaint against normanby is also probable on april sixteenth eighteen fifty louis napoleon said to lord malmesbury a visitor in paris your ambassador, Lord Normanby, is intriguing against me, although his chief, Lord Palmerston, and some of your cabinet ministry are in my favor. I believe Lord Normanby carries on a private correspondence with Prince Albert to my detriment. That some of his colleagues, including the Prime Minister, shared his opinions and were partners in his indiscretion was publicly affirmed by Palmerston and not denied by them. But it is also true that in such a matter a peculiar responsibility attaches to the foreign secretary, and it can hardly be denied that the queen had a fair pretext for insisting on his dismissal. Her own delight at the issue was unbounded. I have the greatest pleasure, she wrote to King Leopold, in announcing to you a piece of news which I know will give you as much satisfaction and relief as it does to us, and will do to the whole world. Lord Palmerston is no longer foreign secretary. The Queen's pleasure was shared at many courts, particularly at Vienna. Schwarzenberg gave a ball, and an English attaché wrote, these arrogant fools here actually think that they have overthrown Lord Palmerston. German opinion was not unfairly reflected in the doggerel lines, Hat der Teufel einen Sohn, so ist er sicher Palmerston. The whole matter gave rise to formal explanations in the House of Commons. The French coup d'etat was not popular in England. Military plots are rightly disliked in a constitutional country. The revelation of the Queen's memorandum gave the Prime Minister a temporary, perhaps an unfair advantage palmerston with some chivalry declined a retort and his reply was consequently ineffective and ill-received but as already recorded russell's triumph was brief for about two months he was master on his own quarter-deck but in the first breeze the ship itself foundered the coup d'etat induced a great deal of uneasiness in england a military monarchy led by unscrupulous men had replaced the weak republic. The national defences were notoriously defective, and Russell, therefore, on February 16th, proposed a scheme for the reorganization of the militia. Palmerston carried an amendment to the bill. The ministry was left in a minority, and treating the vote as one of no confidence resigned on February 20th. The Queen called upon Lord Derby to form a government, his party was in a clear minority in the House of Commons, it had no assured majority in the Lords, and its leaders after twenty years of Whig and Peelite administration were entirely lacking in official experience. It was natural, therefore, that Lord Derby should look for help to the man who had turned out the late government. Palmerston, however, would not join him, on account of protection. And Derby therefore had to rely exclusively upon inexperienced conservatives. Lord Malmesbury succeeded Lord Granville at the Foreign Office. Sir John Packington became Colonial Secretary. Mr. Walpole went to the Home Office. The Duke of Northumberland took the Admiralty, and Lord St. Leonards the Woolsack. Lord Lonsdale, who became Lord President of the Council, and Mr. Harries, who was President of the Board of Control, were with their chief the only ministers who had ever held cabinet office before but of the new appointments incomparably the most interesting was that of disraeli who became chancellor of the exchequer and leader of the house of commons well might sir james graham give his grave head a portentous shake when he spoke of the novel precedent of a whole cargo of the rank and file being carried down to windsor to be made members of the privy council before they could receive the seals of office. All kinds of jokes, wrote Lord Malmesbury, were made in respect of our being such novices in office. Lord Derby himself referred to his team of young horses. Not one had ever been in harness before, and they went beautifully. Not one kicked among them. The new government was clearly a makeshift. An appeal to the country could not be long delayed, and until the constituencies had declared themselves, it was agreed that the policy of the government, fiscal and otherwise, should be conceived as far as possible on non-controversial lines. Supported by Palmerston, they passed with ease to the chagrin of Russell, an act for the reorganization of the militia. The scheme differed from the rejected scheme put forward by Russell in two respects. The new force was to be national instead of local, and it was to be recruited by voluntary enlistment, the compulsory ballot being reserved as a last resort. Disraeli's first essay as Chancellor of the Exchequer was eagerly awaited. His budget, however, was framed necessarily on conventional lines. He renewed the income tax for twelve months, but for reasons stated above made no attempt to revive protectionist principles disraeli's own statement won the unstinted applause of the free-traders who accepted it as a triumphant vindication of the policy pursued during the last ten years the parliament elected in eighteen forty seven was dissolved on july second eighteen fifty two but the general election made little change in the balance of parties in the new parliament the whigs and radicals numbered three hundred and nineteen the Tories between 290 and 300, and the Peelites, 40 to 50. Parliament met on November 4th, but the mind of the nation was set not on the vicissitudes of parties, nor on political conflicts, but on doing the last honors with hearts unisoned by the sense of national sorrow to one who was always above the common party turmoil. On November 18th, the Iron Duke, who had died on September 14th, was laid to rest in St. Paul's Cathedral. The Sovereign and her people mourned in common for one who had served devotedly both queen and country. Truly was the great Duke buried with an empire's lamentation to the noise of the mourning of a mighty nation. No man, wrote Lord Palmerston, ever lived or died in the possession of a more unanimous love, respect, and esteem. Greville, who was no respecter of persons, noted the deference which all men paid to one who occupied a place unique among his countrymen. This tribute was due not only to the conqueror of Napoleon, but to one who in council was recognized, despite obvious limitations, as having a single eye to his sovereign's and his country's interest. Our greatest yet with least pretense, great in council and great in war, foremost captain of his time, rich in saving common sense, and as the greatest only are, in his simplicity sublime. The elections had given no encouragement to protection, and on November 11th, Disraeli announced that the principle was to be decently interred. For the militant free traders this was not enough. They demanded from the Derby ministry not merely abandonment but recantation. On November 23rd Villers proposed a motion to extort it, but Palmerston intervened, and the House contented itself with a pious affirmation of the principle. Protection, as Disraeli said, was not only dead but damned. But the respite secured to the ministry by Lord Palmerston was of short duration. On December 3rd, Disraeli submitted his budget to the House of Commons. Protection was dead, but Peel's most bitter assailant felt it incumbent upon him to do something for the mourners. His scheme was highly ingenious and his exposition of it masterly he proposed to conciliate the general consumer by gradual remission of half the tea duty, to help farmer and consumer alike by remitting half the malt tax, to assess income tax on one third of the farmer's rental instead of one half, to distinguish between earned and unearned income by extending the downward limit to one hundred pounds of the former and fifty pounds of the latter, he calculated that the readjustment of the income tax would make little difference in the yield, but the remissions of tea duty and malt tax were to be offset by an extension of the house tax, to houses assessed at ten pounds a year, and the raising of the rate from nine pence to one shilling sixpence in the pound. On this last proposal he was defeated, and Lord Derby's spirited but short-lived enterprise came to an end. December twentieth, eighteen fifty two. End of Section twenty two.